Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, I want to share a message that um, it's something that I've been wanting to preach, but that has been really preaching to me for a long time. It's an area of our church's life that I think really needs to be strengthened, but it's not something that can be strengthened simply by persuasion. It's got to be a work of God. And that, it, that's a silly picture, but um, I was trying to find a picture that captured how natural prayer is in the right situation. This guy's about to get launched out of a cannon, and he's praying. And in a way, that's like what it must have felt like to be in the early church, just getting started with this thing, which God had said would end up changing the planet for all of history, and he had entrusted it to 120 people who were actually pretty scared, pretty confused, and to entrust that to them, they were praying as though the future depended on it. So I want to talk about the prayer life of the early church. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. I just want to read that along with you. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. Excuse me. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, for the majority of my Christian life, I'm going to just confess to you that um, I struggle with prayer. Now, I've said that before. I'm going to keep saying it just as uh, a matter of honesty. I've struggled for a long time with prayer for a lot of reasons. I mean, partly because I think I'm a lazy person trapped in a diligent man's life. Partly because I am oriented around action and prayer feels so passive for me, so quiet and still, and that's not something I do well. And partly because um, it seems at times that God is invisible and far away, and I'm not sure exactly what I'm doing. For whatever reasons, I have struggled with prayer, even though I knew it was important, even though I've always attended churches that valued prayer highly and told me that prayer is very important. In fact, they led us, sometimes even drove us to pray. I went to churches where they would pray over us by hitting us on the back. That's how important prayer seemed to be to me. Thank you. And yet I struggle. Now that's not to say that I didn't have moments or seasons where prayer was very, very rich in my life. 
But as a general observation, I would say prayer was one of the weaker parts of my Christian experience. And I envied those <clears throat> for whom prayer just seemed so natural. People who would say to me, I love nothing better than to just have a long list of stuff to pray about and about three or four hours of uninterrupted quiet and I just pray and I go, wow, are you from another planet? I, it just, I, I long to be like that, but I just felt like I couldn't be. I want to say, though, after all that discouraging self-disclosure, that in recent years, I've come to understand and embrace prayer in a profoundly different way. Prayer has become a very meaningful and important part of my life. I don't think I'm praying the way I thought I would 25 years into my Christian life, but I'm praying in a way that's, I think, better, more genuine, more true to the Scriptures than the way that I thought I would pray someday. And so I'm grateful to God, and I, I, it's my hope, that as I share this word with you, that your own prayer life would also be strengthened. Now, before we dive into this, a uh, couple things. I want you to have, if you have your Bible, it would be good if you could actually open it to Acts chapter 4. And while you're doing that, I'm going to steal a, a gulp of water. <clears throat> because you'll notice the text we started with today... <clears throat> It opens up with the words, when they were released. And if you're paying attention, your question's got to be, when who was released from what? And so I want to give you a little background as to what was happening earlier in the book of Acts to bring us up to speed with what we're seeing right now. Just a little while earlier, Peter and John, two of the, the inner circle followers of Jesus, had healed a man who had been crippled from birth and for 40 years wrestled with this disability. And just like that, in an instant, in a moment of faith, that man had been healed through the healing power of Jesus Christ. Now, anything like that happens in town in an age without television, people are going to pay attention, and a crowd started to form. And all these curious onlookers said, hey, wasn't that that dude who stood outside the temple for years begging for our money, lying paralyzed on a mat? What was, what's the deal? Was he faking for 40 years, or was he really crippled? And people began to understand this man was healed miraculously and that got everybody's hairs on the back of their necks rising on end. I, if, I don't know if, if the supernatural things like that are everyday occurrences for us, but when they happen, crowds gather. And so then Peter and John began preaching. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached a very stirring gospel message and thousands came to Christ as a result. He was boldly preaching publicly in the name of Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem. And I want you to think about this for a second. This is the same city in which just a little while earlier, the Jewish leaders and the Roman government had conspired together to put to death that very same Jesus Christ. The memory of his death, his gruesome murder public execution are still fresh in everyone's mind. And so I don't want you to think this is a small thing that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands on a street corner and proclaims the name of Jesus and thousands are saved. If I were Jesus, I'd be like, all right, chill out, everybody. Don't go and, and start a movement in town. I don't want to be exposed as the guy who's still talking about Jesus. Remember, this is the same Peter when people said, hey, weren't you with Jesus He's like, uh-uh, and he, he denied him three times on the last night of Jesus' life. Do you remember this, Peter? The betrayer, the one who would deny even knowing Jesus, now standing publicly, endangering himself, preaching boldly. Well, that got him in trouble with the same religious leaders who had arrested and put Jesus to death. They called Peter and John together, and, and in those days, I kind of long for those days, the, the religious leaders had a police force, and they could arrest people. 
and jail them overnight, hold them for questioning. And I'm just kidding. I, I only half wish that those days would come back. But they, they had them jailed overnight <clears throat> for them to think about their crime. And the next morning they appeared before the Jewish High Council, also known as the Sanhedrin. And they received quite a questioning. And one of the things they were asking was, how did you heal this man and under what authority and in whose name are you doing all this? And they boldly said, well, it's in the name of Jesus that we're doing this. Like, you guys stupid or what? Didn't we just put your leader to death and you're going to stand right here in front of us and tell us you're doing everything in Jesus' name? And they would not back down. But the problem was, for these religious leaders, they looked around and the buzz in town was, these guys are onto something real, and they were very popular among the people, and they wanted more and more of this Jesus, and to put these guys to death or to punish them any, any more severely would have bumped them up against the, the people. And so, being at the core, shrewd political creatures, the religious leaders, what they did was they, they scolded them, they threatened them severely, don't ever talk in the name of Jesus publicly again in this town, and then they let him go. Now, I don't know about you, but you might think they got off lightly, but that was not a small or idle threat. When the people who've just murdered your boss are now questioning you and telling you, don't ever speak in his name again, that's not just an empty threat, that's a threat with real teeth in it. And I love the response that Peter gives to the Sanhedrin. He says, hey, judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God, because we're going to keep on talking in the name of Jesus. That kind of courage boggles my mind. I can't really say with honesty I've ever had that kind of courage in all my earthly life. And partly because I've never had an occasion to demonstrate it. We live in a very safe and quiet country, don't we? For the most part, unless you wander into the wrong part of town, you're going to have a very, very calm life in the United States. So I don't know that my faith and my courage have ever been tested to that degree. And I'm amazed at what Peter and John are able to do. And it is in that setting that they return. And look what it says here. We learn a lot about the prayer life of the early church and what happens once they're released. Now you can tell tensions mounting and very, very difficult times are about to come. And here's what they do. First, first thing we learn about prayer life in the early church is that it was driven by friendship. It was driven by friendship. It says when they were released, the first place they went, they went to their friends. And that, that's a very, very important choice of words. They didn't go back to home base, go back to church. They went back to their friends. And, and i got to say, this is so important for the way we think about church. Because some people are just not relational, and they're the ones who are in this for the great battle. This is their team, this is their army, their chosen battlefield, and the people are really propped, their resources, in this grand, grand story. But in the end, the thing we need to understand is the church has always been about people who are friends. People who really love one another, who we instinctively turn to because we care about each other. Because when my life is in trouble, I've just faced danger and stared it in the face. It is my friends that I instinctively want to turn to for comfort and support. That's what the church has always been, and these people are no different. They are the leaders of the Christian gospel movement in the first century, and yet for them it was all about their friendship. And so they go, and, and it says when they got there, they reported everything that had just happened. 
I'm not sure about you, but I think for a lot of us, troubling times drive us inward. They tend to make us shut down and close in a little bit. I find it um, very interesting, the age of Twitter and Facebook and blogging, where everyone's putting their underwear out for, it, for people to see on the Internet. If you, you know, figuratively speaking, I mean, it's amazing what people will put out there on the Internet. And yet in this age of open disclosure where everybody's a publisher, everybody's a celebrity, it's so hard to get people to open up when the stuff really hits the fan, when life gets really hard. You know, we can share about Aunt Millie's dog having... Um, a cold, or we can share about, you know, um, my stocks just went down a couple points and I'm kind of, in, it's a bummer. That stuff we share about, but when we miscarry a child or when someone close to us dies, when we just got fired for a big screw-up at work, not laid off, fired, shame, regret, humiliation. When our girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse has cheated on us, feeling of betrayal, embarrassment. When those kinds of things happen, real life, ugly life in a broken world, what I've noticed for so many people is we shut inward. We don't want to talk to anybody. We don't want anyone to know. This becomes our secret. Everyone stay away from me. Give me space. Stop asking me how I'm doing. Stop bothering me. Now, I understand that sometimes we need a little time to process. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to go throw it out there in front of everybody, but the danger is that in that seclusion, the enemy has a great foothold. And he will use that seclusion to drive you into a place of despair and a sense of being alone, even though the aloneness is something you've chosen. Pain is real. It's a part of all our lives. I haven't felt the kind of pain that some of you have, but pain has been a part of my life as well. And when pain strikes, when worry and fear get a hold of us, the very best place for us to run is into the fellowship of our friends. Whether it's friends here, whether it's family, whether it's friends outside of the church, do not isolate yourself when real life hits you. Because it's in that fellowship, in that community of friendship, that I think prayer life is sparked in a tremendous way. I really think that I pray hardest when someone I love shares something really huge with me. And I think that that's something we overlook. The power of testimony, of just going immediately from the place of our pain to the fellowship of our, our friends and say, this is what's going on. They stood before the Sanhedrin alone, but in that fellowship, they were not alone anymore. And that's so important that they were able to pray together with people who they knew, you've got my back and I would have yours. Prayer, real prayer life in a church, is driven by friendship, which includes open testimony, disclosure, a willingness to share the things that really weigh me down, not to put the Great Wall of China around my heart and say, everyone stay out and leave me alone. And I want to encourage you when stuff is going on in your life, not the little stuff, but the really big stuff, don't stay alone too long. Take the time you need to own your pain, to try to process some of it, but you'd be amazed how much God will use your friends to process the trials of your life, to help you understand what needs to happen next 
in your life. This is the second thing we learn about prayer life. <clears throat> and prayer is just driven by life. I love that picture. It was my desktop on my computer for a while. Um, some of you really identify with that picture, don't you? Isn't that the way it sometimes feels to be in your shoes? Here's what I mean by that. Look what the text says. So they run to their friends, they report everything, and as soon as the friends hear it, they lifted their voices together to God. I don't think this was one of those where our leaders were, were in a room and they went, uh, let us tell you what happened last night in jail and this morning before the Sanhedrin. And one of the leaders said, let us pray. I don't think it was that kind of they lifted their voices. I think it was, holy cow! And then people just erupted in prayer because that's what happens when real life breaks onto the scene. You know, one of the reasons I think I wrestled so much with, um, with prayer was because for most of the time that I was praying, at least at church, it felt so disconnected from the fabric of reality. Here's what prayer meetings felt like to me. A bunch of people sitting around in a circle trying really hard to make up prayer requests because they don't want to be the one bozo who, when it's their turn, uh, I got nothing to pray about. I don't have any requests. And then the smart aleck prayer meeting leader goes, oh, I guess your life is perfect. All right, let's move on to the next person. And so we didn't want to be that guy. We've got stuff going on, but we don't want to talk about any of that stuff. So we're like, what's the safest thing I could talk about? And people would share this really lame stuff. And half the time, no more than half, 90% of the time, it was about somebody else. It was never about them. Uh, could you pray for my friend? Because my friend is the only one with needs. And I was like, this is so boring. I feel like I'm praying about nothing. I'm even bored hearing your request. How can I move my heart to pray for you? I don't even give a crud about what you just said. Honestly, I'm, I'm being very honest. What you just shared is so safe and so peripheral to your own life. It's a waste of all of our time. Can't you come up with something that's really happening in your life? And that's why it bothered me so much. There was a sense in which prayer was an activity we did because it was time to do it, because it was our duty to do it, because it was righteous to do it, but it never felt riveted, connected to anything I cared about desperately. And I know that I'm alive because when something really does happen to me, I move. My heart is stirred. When I watch a movie, believe it or not, I watched Toy Story 3 and I wept. I watched the movie up and I cried. When I see real stuff, my heart's moved. So I question, why is it that in prayer meeting after prayer meeting, my heart feels so completely numb and dead and bored silly? I think part of it is because prayer was a religious duty. It wasn't, for me, connected to real life. But as soon as that connection got made for me, something profound happened. I realized that prayer is greatly driven by the reality of life in a broken and fallen world. You know... I, I love these photos from the um, running of the bulls. This, all these photos from this year's running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. And the whole idea is a bunch of testosterone-filled men are trying to prove something to everybody. And so they, run, they, they fill these streets packed. And then they release a whole bunch of sharp-horned 2,000-pound bulls who are angry as heck from being smacked and teased and poked. And they run them through the streets. And these guys try to get as close. So you can see that um, they're touching the bull. That's just so that when their girlfriend's watching, like, oh, my man, it's just... And they, they make a mental note of that, and they get a lot of points for this. In some of the photos, the guys are chasing the bulls. So desperate are they to prove themselves. 
But what's interesting is once in a while you get this guy, or you get these guys who are running for their lives. These guys, the bull's running over them and they're ducking for dear life. You get the idea what this is like. The reason I like these pictures is because they remind me that when real stuff happens, you don't need any training to respond. You just respond. No one had to tell these men, look, when the 2,000-pound bull comes towards you, run, you fools, run. Gandalf moment there. You don't have to tell people that because a bull bearing down on you produces a natural response. It would be foolish and unthinkable to stand your ground and take the bull on. This to me is what's missing about so much prayer in the church. Maybe it's because we live in a country without persecution. Maybe it's because we have insulated our lives against every possible eventuality. And in a, in, a, in a sense, then, our lives are safe, but they are painfully boring and uneventful. We come up with the most pathetic dramas just to make ourselves feel alive. I'm convinced some of the couples in our country are fighting just so they remember that they're alive. Because everything is going so well, if they don't fight, they don't even feel like they have a pulse. This is the country I think we're living in. And as a result... What is there to pray about unless you're paying attention to life and it's hitting you in the face? But when it does that, if you're really honest about it, the natural response, if you know God, the maker of all things, is you will turn to Him. Prayer was trained to me for years as that which we do because we're good Christians. And I'm done with that kind of prayer. I'm done with it because I find that I'm not wired for it. Maybe you are, and if you are, I'm not trying to discourage you one bit. God has made each of us different. I cannot pray simply as a matter of duty. I've discovered that I'm totally fake when I'm doing it, and I'm miserable every moment of it. But when I put myself out there and I live my life with eyes open, when I get into situations where, where I'm with people who are hurting, where real things are going on, I pray. I pray because I'm alive, because I'm a human being, because it's the natural response to what I've just witnessed or been told about. And so I pray. I'm one of those people who needs to be alive in order to pray, needs to be paying attention in order to pray. And I find that when you are activated and engaged in life, there is no shortage of things that will drive you to God. I really think that this, I, 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 it's my hope, will energize some of you who are like me, who cannot report on Thursday nights at 7.30 or a prayer meeting, and for an hour and a half, be totally, genuinely intense about talking to God. But when you're in the hospital bedside of your best friend who's dying of cancer, no one has to tell you to pray, do they? Unless you're a cold-hearted monster, you will pray because now prayer has been riveted to something you really care about, something that's really happening. I do believe there's a place in Christendom for prayer as a discipline. Don't get me wrong. And I'm thankful for those who can pray on the... Like my, my wife can sleep on command. Some people can pray on command. And they can be genuine about it. I'm just giving you open disclosure. I am not one of those people. But thankfully, I'm in a job where my life is filled with real stuff. And I'm up late at night bearing the burdens for those people that I love. I think life... Real life drives us to prayer. That's probably why prayer flourishes in countries where great persecution 
abounds. Life drives prayer. We also learn that prayer is driven by theology. Prayer is driven by theology. By a right understanding of God and the world which He made, our prayer lives are greatly enriched. You know, I once witnessed a very awkward scene when I was in China as, uh, as a, um, on a vision trip. Um, I was watching an American guest at the hotel get into this little um, exchange with the Chinese front desk clerk. And he was trying to make himself understood, trying to ask a question, and she was not understanding him. And understandably so, because she was in her own country, speaking her own language, and he was the foreigner speaking a foreign language, and he was getting really red in the face and upset that this foolish woman could not understand his English. And, and so the more he was clear he wasn't getting his meaning across, the louder he talked. He just kept cranking up the volume and turning up the redness dial on his neck and the vein in his forehead was about to pop out. And I was watching this whole scene thinking, well, I'm really learning something here. Okay, I'm really learning something. And what I'm learning is that in communication, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in being informed is just as important as being intense. Okay? Being informed is just as important as being intense. Just because you can yell louder, feel more passionately, be more convinced of your position, doesn't mean you have any clue what on earth you're talking about. If you're steeped in lies, if you're completely misguided, like for example, I once heard two kids arguing vigorously about song lyrics and both of them were wrong. They just heard the radio phonetically and they were like, no, it means this. No, they're saying this. I'm like, you dummies, you're both wrong. But they're so red in the face, so passionate, and they're both completely misinformed. What a complete waste of life that whole debate was because two wrong, misinformed people were passionately arguing their case and neither way could they actually resolve the, the real issue. I really believe that when we pray, it's not just about being filled with bluster or emotion or volume. I remember when I was younger, this one older brother taught me. I was saying, you know, everybody else seems so intense in prayer. All these other people are crying all the time. Is there something wrong with my heart? Because I never feel like crying and I can't get that passionate. I said, and he, here's what he actually taught me. He goes, try this next time. Try, start slowly and just kind of rock it a little bit. Work it. And then as you want to increase your intensity, rock a little harder. All right, Lord, come on. And then as you're doing all that, start thinking about like your dog dying or, you know, <laughs> some sad thing. And then it'll get the tears going. I'm like, are you serious? I was flabbergasted. I'm like, this is your advice to me? Is to fake intensity? I think sometimes the reason that it's hard to be intense in prayer is because we have no clue what we, we have nothing to say. But if you know what's really going on, if you really know God, boy, it really enriches, it energizes the way we pray. It helps us not to waste our breath praying for things which God would never respond to. You know, I love the way these guys, as they're praying, they open their prayer. There's a sovereign Lord, that word that's outlined there in red. In the Greek, it's the word despotes, which is um, the same word from which we derive our English despot. Do you know what a despot is? 
It's a great SAT word. A despot is a ruler with absolute authority over everything. He could look at you and go, off with your head, and you're dead. Okay? Um, it's a very rare word. It's only used like six times in the entire New Testament to refer to God, and this is one of those cases. What they're saying is, God, you are the unquestioned, absolute, supreme master of the universe. There is nobody who rivals your authority. Nobody down here, despite all their, their anger and their loud voices and their army behind them, these men who are threatening us are as nothing compared to you. Do you see that right away from the very way they address God, their theology is restoring comfort and confidence even as they pray. Who you're praying to is the first act of prayer. To get it in your mind, who am I praying to? We think so much about what we're praying about, but the first act of prayer is to establish, who am I praying to? Before you launch into self-therapy and to a reciting of all the trials and burdens you have, you've got to establish, am I talking to my friend or am I talking to the God of the universe? And that's where theology will serve you well. Prayer is not self-help. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's communication with the living God, the maker of everything, who holds life and death in His hands. And if that is not a part of what you really believe, your prayer from the very beginning will be defeated because you're just praying to another buddy. And really, in the end, what can your buddy do for you? So they address God properly as sovereign Lord and creator who made everything in the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything in them. And then look what they go on to say. They quote David who prophetically spoke in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. David was given a vision of the Messiah who would come. A thousand years after him, he got a vision of Jesus, and what he saw in that vision was that the nations were raging and the leaders were hostile against the Messiah, but what did it all amount to? For all of their bluster, these, these enemies of Christ would not prevail. Even in putting him to death, they were only doing what God had already planned all along to do. And so they're remembering the words of their ancestor David, words spoken a thousand years ago, recorded for them in their scriptures, and they're turning to that now in their prayer because it's helping them understand what's actually happening now. How profound is that, that the words David saw, the vision he saw prophetically, it was unfolding right there in their own lives, and they're connecting the scriptures to what's happening. Here's why that's so important. For most of us, I think what happens is, we try to figure out God by thinking about our lives. So if I ask you, is God good today? The way most people will answer that is not, not theologically, but experientially. Well, let's see. I'm in a good mood. I'm losing weight. I've got a good job. My kids are getting good grades. Yes, God is very good today. We try to make sense of God by examining our lives. And that's completely backwards of how it ought to be. What these people are teaching us is that we ought to examine God and His Word and then thereby try to make sense of what's happening in our lives. I think the reason so much prayer doesn't avail us much is because it's built on really faulty theology, a very wrong notion about who God is and how His universe works. But when our beliefs are lined up with what the Scriptures teach, we're able to pray in a way that strikes right to the heart of the matter. It unlocks the heart of God because it aligns well with the way it actually works. 
The Bible describes reality, and when we pray biblically and in an informed way, our prayers get answered. I don't, I don't know if we realize just how much bad theology may be costing us in our prayer life. You know, I pray with people who, albeit very honestly, they were very in, in pain, they were saying this from the bottom of their hearts, but their prayers would start something like this. God, if you're out there, if you're really out there, if you love me, and these are Christians I'm talking about, not lost people, Christians who are in pain in their prayer, the opening line of their prayer is, God, if you really love me. Now, I understand emotionally where that line is coming from, but I want to ask you a question. A flight that takes off so wobbly, how poorly is it going to land? Where can you go with a plane like that? When your prayer begins with calling into question whether God loves us or is even out there, a theology so flawed cannot produce a prayer that is answerable. Now, there's an honest way we can cry out to God in ignorance. But when you know God, and yet your opening line of your prayer offends the very heart of who God is, when you can call into question whether God is loving, when He discloses God is love, where can that prayer go? What comfort can be possibly drawn from that prayer as it continues? And so I want to encourage you, think seriously about how you pray. Just because you prayed intensely, doesn't mean that much. How many people have told me in my office, we prayed a lot about it and we have peace. And I'm like, well, that's amazing because if I prayed about what you just decided, I could never have peace with the decision you've made. Praying intensely and repeatedly about the same things you want don't necessarily produce the kind of peace that only God can give. Sometimes what we do by our repetition is convince ourselves of something, but I wouldn't call that prayer. Prayer to be valid in the life of a Christian must line up with the truth of God and the truth of God's Word. You cannot pray things in opposition to God's Word and expect a reply from God. And so I want to caution you about that. Theology enriches and energizes and drives our prayer life. Let me give you one last thing. Prayer life is driven by a clear sense of mission. Listen to what these guys say. At the end of their prayer, they spend five verses telling God true things about who He is and two verses asking God for something. And here are the two verses where they ask God for something. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants... How would you finish that sentence? Lord, you know they just threatened us big time and they're going to carry out... They're going to make good on these threats. And so now, Lord, in view of their threats... What would you ask God for? Shout it out to me. What would you ask God for? What's the most sane and natural thing to ask God for? Safety. Yeah, you guys are nice. I'd be like, kill them all, Lord! Smite them in their sleep so they cannot threaten us anymore. I, I'd be praying for all kinds of stuff, right? Look at these crazy dudes, what they pray for. Knowing their threats, grant to us, your servants, that's important, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While, and, and this is our faithfulness part, while in the background the real work is being done by God, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
What they're saying is, God, we know you're at work. You're marching. You're doing things that no human being can explain. But while you're doing your thing, help us to be faithful to do ours. Our prayer is not that you would shelter us, protect us, keep us from all harm, but that you will get us from one side to the other. Even if it costs us our lives, the mission is paramount because it's not our mission, it's the mission of Jesus Christ. And when he purchased us eternally, he earned the right to define how our lives would finish out. He earned the right to define how our days would be numbered and what we would do with those years we have remaining. In fact, the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians 3 that he will one day weigh and measure the life that we lived on the other side of our salvation experience. Once he buys us, we're not our own anymore. We belong to Jesus Christ and nothing could be more clear from the scriptures. That means Jesus gets to decide what happens to us. And what happens for, for so many of us is we regard trouble and danger and loss as problems automatically to be avoided and protected against. And so what we do, whether it's in our own lives or whether we're advising others, is our best advice, our best approach is run for the hills and pray for shelter. Now, I get that. It's a very natural response, but I don't think it's a very biblical one. I think the most biblical response in a time of trial is to say, God, if this is a part of the journey that you've called me to, if this is a part of the calling on my life, what can I ask except get me through this? Strengthen me. And I want to challenge you, church, about this. Because sometimes people in our church are going through real trials. They're facing down the barrel of a gun and they're turning to you for counsel and for prayer. And I've got to challenge you on this. Too often what they're hearing back is, make it easier on yourself, kid. Don't stick your neck out. It's going to get chopped. Circle your wagons. Bring in your children from the, from the yard. Bring them behind the fence. Go the route of safety. Store up money. Quit this thing. Don't do that anymore. Take a break. Our advice seems always to be the path of least resistance. The path of weakness. The path of personal safety. But it's not the path of the mission. We need to hear more often people saying to one another, I speak strength into your life. I speak courage into your life. I pray for you, not that you would run for the hills from every danger, but that God would give you strength and courage to face it and to endure. Because at the end of our lives, if we've died fat and safe, we've gained very little for the kingdom of God. Jesus said it so clearly, if you love your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for Him, you will gain it many times over. Now, I'm not telling you, go out and sell everything and join the Peace Corps or something. What I'm saying to you is this. <clears throat> if you don't have a clear sense of the calling which God has placed on your life, if you have not acknowledged that He alone owns everything, that He has a full and legitimate right to determine the rest of your days, well, then your prayer life is always going to fall short of what it could be because it's missing the mark. And if you understand that Jesus owns it all, that He is most important, that His mission becomes our mission, if we understand that together, we'll pray differently. We'll stop praying 
The unbeliever's prayer. Rescue me. Protect me. Take the pain away. What we'll pray instead is the prayer of Christ. I don't like what I'm facing, but if this is part of your will, then let it be done. Simply give me the strength to get through it. I know that sometimes we think it's loving to tell people the easy way out, but it's not loving. Not when they have a calling on their life. When they have a calling on their life, the most loving thing you can do is pray and speak strength and courage into that person's life. To be the sole voice sometimes who will say, look, I know everyone's telling you to go. I'm telling you to plant your feet and trust God. He'll see you through. This needs to be the way that we pray as followers of Jesus Christ. I hope that it's the way we pray. Because let me tell you something, our lives are safe, but someday you look back and regret how painfully safe your life was. You look back and say, my life was a long, unending reel of security camera footage. I had to buy new stuff just to feel my heart quicken. I had to go to exotic places just to feel alive. But if you engage God in His calling on your life, it'll get real exciting real quick. And prayer, more than becoming a religious duty, will become like sucking in air when you break the surface of the water after holding your breath. It will be the most natural thing that you and I could do. I'll close with this. I love the way this passage ends. Wouldn't you love to attend a prayer meeting like this? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Okay. Uh, that's not figurative. It means that the house rumbled. Ceiling tiles were falling down and all of that. And I just think, talk about an instant, immediate answer to prayer. Do you think God was honored by the prayer that they lifted up? Absolutely. How often have we prayed and it felt like God was silent for months? And yet these people prayed this God-honoring, Christ-centered, courageous prayer and immediately, no sooner do they say amen than the very house in which they're meeting shakes at its foundations and then they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they all go out together continuing to speak the Word of God boldly. Whoa. Thank goodness for my ninja skills. I saved it at the last minute. See what happens when you get excited. I would love to be in just one prayer meeting in my life where the building shakes because God has heard us and what we've just prayed delights Him so much He can hardly, hardly, hardly wait to answer. You know, when your children go, Mommy, you know, with my birthday money, can I, please, oh please, can I save some of it and give it to the hungry children in Haiti? Do you say to them, I'll think about it and tell you tomorrow. No way. You're like, yes, yes. That's exactly the kind of heart I want to see in you. That is beautiful. Mom, with all this candy, can I give some to my brother? Yes. Yes. Some questions get answered quickly because they delight the heart of God, the Father. When we pray that way, He answers us. And He answers quick. And He answers powerfully. And because of the prayer they prayed, because of the courage God gave them and the filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they spoke boldly, many of them losing their lives as a, as a cost. And the gospel went from one life 
to the next to the next over generations with much blood spilled. None of it ours. And 2,000 years later, here we are today gathered in this room. This diverse group of people all bound together by one thing, a shared experience that one day we heard the good news of Jesus Christ and our hearts were opened up because somebody prayed a courageous prayer and God answered it. I want to see prayer erupt at our church. But when I say erupt, it's not the visions you might be thinking. I don't want to see people barking at the ceiling. I don't want to hear hysterical laughter in the middle of my sermon. I'm not saying that stuff isn't valid. It's not really what I have in mind. What I'm talking about is to see God so clearly, to live life so fully that we will pray because if we don't pray, it will be like we're suffocating and nothing will move. Prayer is breath for the follower of Jesus. And I want to see that kind of prayer rise up in this church. And I want to see God shake our house and fill us with the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Maybe each of us knows somebody who might be appropriately called a prayer warrior. Someone who can pray 24-7, fast for 40 days, lay their hands on you and tell you your most secret thoughts. I thank God for people like that. What an anointing they have. What a ministry they've been called to. What about prayer for the rest of us? Why is it that historically, in in America especially, The hardest meeting to get people to come to is the prayer meeting. Why is that? Well, if we live life with our eyes open, and if we knew that when we pray, we have the ear of the creator of the universe, well, what we would say would matter. If we engaged life and the people around us so fully, if we shared our real tragedies, our real pain, we would really pray, wouldn't we? And so it's our prayer today that God would teach us how to really pray as a church. No longer simply as a matter of religious duty, but because it is our very breath. So having said that, I'm going to invite us just to quietly respond to God, and then I'll ask the praise team to lead us into a song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.